Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 47, Deuteronomy chapter 32, the third continuation. Well, as we continue in this Song of Moses, of Deuteronomy chapter 32, I want to begin, as we did last week, in summarizing a couple of divine principles that have been a work in progress for us since the book of Genesis. And these principles are at the forefront of what is being declared and prophesied in the poetic words of the Song of Moses. Now, I've spoken before on the glue that binds the Word of God together from Genesis to Revelation, and that glue is God's justice system. In Hebrew, justice is mishpat. Now, on numerous occasions I told you that Yeshua satisfied God's justice system for a specific purpose, and that it was one of the many steps that from the overall process of mankind's salvation history, a process that's not yet completed, there were many stages. The term satisfied does not mean abolished. It doesn't mean brought to an end. If someone robs a bank and is subsequently arrested and given a fair trial and convicted and sent to prison, it's said that our American justice system has been satisfied. Obviously, the convicted criminal ultimately going to jail did, bring, did not bring about the abolishment of our justice system as a result of the justice system being satisfied upon establishment of his guilt. Rather, the purpose and goal of our justice system, the satisfaction of the system, was brought about by the justice process that produced its intended result. Now, I tell you this because so many mainstream church doctrines of today loudly proclaim that God's justice system was abolished in favor of universal love and forgiveness due to Christ's passion upon the cross. Thus, a believer can, for all practical purposes, do no wrong. All right, that would demand God's discipline because God no longer dispenses justice, only mercy. Now, in order to cut to the chase in addressing this erroneous doctrine, I took us last week to Revelation 15 whereby we were in the midst of the chapters depicting the pouring out of God's wrath upon the world and on its people during the final days of, or perhaps immediately following, the Great Tribulation. And in those verses we found that the people who were loyal to God were singing this very song of Moses, right, that we are studying as a victory song and as a remembrance of God's promise of justice for his people, his amim. Now I submit that a good alternate title for this song might be the Ode to Jehovah's Justice. Because in it we see both sides of the justice coin being played out. God's kindness and severity his salvation and destruction, the Lord's blessing and curses, our reward and punishment. Now, God's justice system did not end as we turn the page from the book of Ezra to the book of Matthew. Nor did God's justice system end at Calvary. In fact, we are told unequivocally in the New Testament, that all men, including believers, will eventually be judged. Okay, listen to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4.14. If you're being insulted because you bear the name of the Messiah, how blessed you are! For the spirit of the Shekinah, that is, the Spirit of God, is resting upon you. Let none of you suffer for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a meddler in other people's affairs, but if anyone suffers for being messianic, let him not be ashamed. But let him bring glory to God by the way he bears his name. 
For the time has come for the judgment to begin, and it begins with the household of God. And it starts, if it starts with us, what will the outcome be for those who are disobeying God's good news? If the righteous is barely delivered, where will the ungodly and sinful end up? Even the household of God, those who accepted Christ, the church, will stand before God in judgment. But on what basis will we be judged? By what standard will we have to answer to our lives before our Creator? Well, it won't be based on whether or not we trust in Yeshua, because by definition the family of God that Peter speaks about are believers. Rather, believers will be judged based on God's long-established justice system, the laws and the commands of the Torah that he set down at Mount Sinai. Now, the consequences of that judgment are going to be entirely different for us than for those who are not believers. All those who do not believe will suffer eternal destruction. No believer will suffer eternal destruction. Rather, we believers will have our lives opened up to us, our deeds or lack of deeds exposed, the fruit of our lives counted by the Lord, and those of us doing the least of the righteous deeds and bearing little fruit will receive the barest of rewards. And those of us who accomplished a bounty of righteous deeds with much fruit will be given the greatest of rewards. Now understand that all fruit that can be born is the result of obedience to God. One does not produce good fruit through disobedience to the commandments of the Lord. So our deeds and our fruit are in some way the measure of obedience and love that will be used by Jehovah to judge us, his people. The fruit is not measured by the size of our bank accounts. It's not going to be even measured by the size of our families, our congregations. Rather, it's that part of our lives that has produced enduring good for the kingdom of God at the direction of the Holy Spirit. But you know that word judgment needs to be examined in order for us to grasp what, is, what it actually means. Judgment has come to mean, in our day anyway, something invariably negative. Judgment is seen, at least within Judeo-Christianity, as synonymous with wrath or punishment. And biblically, that's not so. Thus, when we hear that the world is going to be judged, we usually assume it means the, the world will automatically bear God's wrath. Further, we cringe when we hear that believers will be judged, or we come up with some kind of allegorical apology to say that isn't really what the Bible says, because we get this strange mental picture of what is occurring when we run across the word judgment in our Bibles. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, can also be translated as Judgment. Justice and judgment are basically the same things. And the biblical idea is that a person is placed before the lawgiver to be scrutinized. And then a verdict is pronounced. There is no assumption of guilt in the word mishpat. Therefore, when a believer stands before God in judgment, we already know part of that verdict. We who trust in him shall be declared innocent due to the work of Yeshua on the cross. The remainder of the verdict for a believer is then only what level, or perhaps absence, of reward is her, his or hers beyond eternal life. But that verdict will perhaps be accompanied with a tinge of sadness as we all will see our failings to be obedient and be faithful displayed before us and the awful results that it probably caused.
So as we continue studying the Song of Moses, I hope that as we come across the words judgment and justice, that we can take them in a more neutral way, which is the way it was intended. Because as we'll soon see, the proper definition of judgment also greatly affects biblical passages that employ another commonly used English word, vengeance. Okay. Let's read yet again the remaining words to the Song of Moses. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32. We're going to start reading at verse 30. That would be page 236 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Starting at verse 30. After all, how can one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to rout unless their rock sells them to their enemies? Unless Adonai hands them them over. For our enemies have no rock like our rock. Even they can see that. Rather, their vine is from the vine of Saddam, from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are poisonous, their clusters are bitter, their wine is snake poison, the cruel venom of vipers. Isn't this hidden with me sealed in my storehouses? Vengeance and payback are mine for the time when their foot slips. For the day of their calamity is coming soon, their doom is rushing upon them. Yes, Adonai will judge his people, taking pity on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone, that no one has left slavery free, then he will ask, where are their gods? The rocks in whom they trusted? who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let him get up and help you. Let him protect you. See now that I, yes, I am he. There's no God beside me. I put to death and I make alive. I wound and I heal. No one saves anyone from my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as surely as I am alive forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and set my hand to judgment, I will render vengeance to my foes, repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives. Flesh from the wild-haired heads of the enemy. Sing out, you nations, about his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance to his adversaries and make atonement for the land of his people. Moses came and proclaimed all the words of this song in the hearing of the people and of Hosea the son of Nun. And when he had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words of my testimony against you today so that you can use them in charging your children to be careful to obey all the words of this Torah. This is not a trivial matter for you. On the contrary, it's your life. Through it, you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. That same day Adonai said to Moses, Go up and through the Gavarim range to Mount Nebo and to the land of Moab across from Jericho. Look out over the land of Canaan, which I am giving the people of Israel as a possession. And on the mountain you are ascending, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. The reason for this is that both of you broke faith with me there among the people of Israel at the Mervat Kadesh Spring in the Sin Desert. You failed to demonstrate my holiness there among the people of Israel. So you will see the land from a distance, but you will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. Earlier in this theological poem, the topic was the past. Israel's past. Beginning with verse 30, the time reference begins now a move towards the future. And the Lord puts forth the rhetorical question of how is it that one warrior can put to flight a thousand of the opposition, ten defeat, ten thousand opponents? In other words, how can a smaller enemy force defeat the stronger and more numerous Israelites with their great God? unless the Israelites' own gods given them up to that enemy. Of course, the expected answer is it can't happen any other way. 
Therefore, this is something that not only should Israel understand, but that Israel's conquerors should recognize so that they don't pat themselves on their collective backs or credit their inferior gods for their military successes against Israel. Yet even though the Lord will use Israel's enemies to crush his people as a divine punishment, so the Lord will also use it all for salvation. And because the enemy will boast and brag and treat Israel so harshly, the Lord will turn his wrath away from Israel towards the enemy. The grapes of the promised land that once produced such wonderful wine and joy for Israel will be as poison and bitterness for the enemy as they try to enjoy what had been set aside exclusively for God's people. We're told in verse 34 that the Lord has stored away this this poison wine destined for the enemy and that it has been sealed up in the Father's own storehouse. Naturally, the poison wine's figurative, a metaphor for the punishment that's going to be inflicted upon Israel's oppressors. Now, these verses are explaining that A, this scenario will happen. B, the outcome will occur as prophesied. And further, C, the Lord has put his seal on it. Meaning it's certain that only he has access to the agent of his wrath. That's the metaphor of the poison grapes that it will be deployed upon this enemy. Well, the imagery of a storehouse being sealed up by its owner was a familiar one to people of this era. It was the practice of a landowner or a king to seal the latches to his storehouse with uh, clay or wax stamped with his signet ring. Now, obviously, such a seal acts as a notice to someone who might want to go inside that the contents belong to a particular powerful person. So it's a warning for the unauthorized to stay away. But the seal is also a mark of ownership, and it identifies just who that powerful person is that has the sole right to the stored contents. Now we have numerous places in both the Old and New Testaments that speak of something being sealed up by the Lord. So the idea is that something that has been pronounced as a future event, if it's sealed up, means it's a done deal. Nothing can change it. And that only the Lord can decide the time and the circumstance of its unveiling. Therefore, in verse 35, the thought continues that at the moment of the Lord's choosing, he will open up his personal storehouse that's full of stored up wrath. He's going to empty it out upon all those who deserve it. And this is because all vengeance and recompense are his and his alone. So here we encounter the word vengeance that I mentioned was associated with justice and judgment. But let me also tell you that vengeance is a rather poor choice of words to translate. The original Hebrew word used, nakah. Okay. It's from this passage that we get the famous Christian phrase, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance, of course, means to exact revenge upon someone with great fury. You've offended me, now I'm going to exact a punishment from you. Nakah Let me say this a different way. The content of this passage we just read is therefore usually presented that under God's justice system the wicked enemy who has harmed his people Israel are going to be subjected to a God who's going to exact payback for their evil ways. Kind of an eye for an eye retribution. And that is his sole province 
to do. But you know, that just kind of misses the whole point. Okay, Nakah has a different sense to it than revenge. Revenge was the usual method that an ancient Middle Eastern family dealt with somebody who dishonored or harmed a family member. Okay? The concept of revenge was, was rooted in tribalism and paganism. And it's, it's the natural result of a blood feud. A family was required by ancient custom to go after someone who dishonored them or they'd lose even more honor. And in the story of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who led a murderous raid on the helpless city of Shechem, the raid was for the purpose of reaping revenge right, for the king of Shechem's son having dishonored Jacob's family by raping Dinah. Jacob not only immediately denounced his sons for exacting this revenge, but on his deathbed, decades later, he cursed Simeon and Levi for doing this rather than blessing them. This demonstrated that God's character does not approve of revenge. Okay. The establishment of the cities of refuge in the promised land even provided a safe haven for those who might otherwise have been the victims of revenge. See, the never-ending cycle of violence that we see in the Middle East today is all about revenge. Blood feuds among families and tribes and religious sects. Our Arab brother in Christ, Tass, fled from the West Bank to the USA many years ago when he was still a Muslim due to a blood feud that would for sure have eventually claimed his life. So rather than nakah, meaning vengeance, Mendenhall says it means, this is interesting, the executive exercise of power by the highest legitimate authority for the protection of his own subjects. It's all about protection. In other words, the action taken is for the purpose of defense, not offense. God will pour out these calamities, this, this storehouse full of poison wine upon Israel's conquerors, so they'll stop harming Israel, release them. Okay? And thus Israel will survive and not be eradicated. The sense of it is taking action against a wicked person to keep them from doing further harm to one of the king's citizens. The issue is protection. It's self-defense from an aggressor. It's not revenge on a perpetrator. Okay. The larger purpose is to benefit the citizen as opposed to punishing the enemy, although punishment certainly plays a role in it. So perhaps we need to rethink our use of that phrase that we kind of like to use as a club. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Because in fact, the Lord is not saying that he takes revenge. He's saying it's his prerogative to take whatever action he deems necessary to protect his own from people who aren't his. Now let's apply this same concept to God's justice system. God's justice is that he'll do whatever it takes to protect his own from the wicked. You know, he gets no joy from destroying the wicked. No joy. The justice system that he established is based on protecting those who trust in the Lord, even if it means harming or ultimately destroying others who he may well love. All people are his creations. But they haven't chosen to be part of his people. And therefore, they can be a threat to his people. Just as the Lord will do justice on the enemy, he will do justice upon his people. But the verdict and the consequences are radically different. 
Here's where our earlier talk on mishpat, justice and judgment, again comes into play. In verse 36, we're introduced to a new term that's part of the process of God's justice system, din. And it means to judge, or it can mean to plead a case. It doesn't mean to judge in the sense of God pouring out punishment, the, the typical but wrong meaning for judgment. It means to take, to, to make a decision, to, to decide a case, whether that verdict is for or against. It is applied here concerning Israel, but it's the same term used for judging the enemy. When an accused person stands before a judge, you know, he can be declared guilty or innocent, depending on the evidence. So when God's enemy is judged according to God's justice system, and he's found guilty, then there's punishment. When God's people are judged according to God's justice system and found innocent, then there is protection. Thus, the complete Jewish Bible has excellent wording to best describe what's happening here when it says God will judge his people taking pity on his servants. God will consider the case against his people and will judge, that is, he'll make a determination that he shall show them compassion. God will consider the case against Israel's enemy. And he'll judge, he will make a determination that he will harm them in order to protect his people. Let's back up and reestablish our context. God says that Israel will abandon him. So he will punish them by means of an enemy who will conquer Israel and exile them from the promised land. But at some point, the Lord will see that the punishment has achieved the hoped-for result. And soon his people will be ready to repent and return to him and reclaim their redemption. So he stops punishing his people. And instead, he turns that wrath towards the enemy as a means of putting an end to Israel's divinely ordered punishment. Now, how will God decide when it's time to turn off his disciplinary action against Israel and redirect it instead towards the enemy? Verse 36 continues, when he, God, sees that there, Israel's strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. Obviously, the phrase, and no one is left, of Israel cannot literally mean that every last Israelite is gone or Israel would be extinct and there'd be nobody to save. Instead, the term is yet another Hebrew idiom that more or less means that whatever remnant of Israel remains, they have finally reached the end of themselves. They've arrived at that point of total helplessness and therefore total dependence on God. In fact, the usual translation of no one is left slave or free has been challenged and several Hebrew language scholars now say the phrase should read and no one is left ruler or helper. Thus the intent is that Israel is so disheveled as to be without leadership. Its rulers and their employees who led Israel into this predicament are now dead and gone. And so Israel is sailing as a a rudderless ship in stormy seas. Thus they're finally ready to accept a new and holy rudder. The leadership of Jehovah, their God. But understand that Israel... God's redeemed, were all sent into exile away from God, by God, because they had effectively abandoned him by means of their disobedience and idolatry. Those Hebrews who died in that foreign place while they were in exile 
with their redemption canceled, remain separated from God for all eternity. The fortunate ones who lived through the long ordeal and saw the error of their ways returned to God's waiting arms to renew their redemption. Now on one hand, this is a good illustration of people we all know who have accepted, who have not accepted rather God and die in that condition versus those who were fortunate to live just long enough to finally see their hopeless situation and accept his salvation maybe only days or hours before their opportunity ended in death. On the other hand, this is also like the situation that we talked about in James chapter 5 last week, where a brother in Christ, a believer, wandered away from the truth, wandered away from his own redemption, and James urged believers to go after him because if that wandering brother died in that state, his fate of eternal separation from God was sealed. In verse 37, it has God saying, kind of sarcastically, so, what good did those other gods that you worship do you? How'd all that work out for you anyway? Since they meant so much to you, since you had such little regard for me that you reckoned they'd be more beneficial to you, what happened? Where are all those gods now? Who was it that ate the fat of your offerings and drank the libation offerings? In other words, when Israel started sacrificing to those pseudo-gods, the sacrifices that should have been for Yehovah, did those gods show up now to bail you out when the enemy approached? They were supposed to be your shield. Weren't they? Therefore, says the Lord, can you now see there's no God beside me? I'm the one who rescued you from Egypt. I'm the one that gave you new life. I'm the one that brought you into the promised land. And I'm the one that just turns you over to your enemies when you became unfaithful to me. No other gods have either the authority or the power to do such things for you or against you, as does Jehovah. And no other gods can ever stop me from proceeding to take out my wrath on whomever I choose. Now please take note. Obviously these statements are figurative. God doesn't think in serial fashion like men. He doesn't find his moods swinging nor his emotions vacillating. God doesn't have a literal glittering sword or a physical hand to carry it. He's spirit. He doesn't have a fleshly body. But no truer words could be spoken about the relationship between the Lord and Israel and the pseudo-gods than what we just read. Let's move down to verse 43. Verse 43. What we read in the complete Jewish Bible here represents the vast majority of Bible translations. But the discovery and the reconstruction of the Dead Sea Scrolls has added great intrigue to this final invocation of the Song of Moses that calls upon the nations, and remember by definition now, we have to mentally add the word Gentile to the word nations, Gentile nations, right, to rejoice in what God has done. The complete Jewish Bible, like so many others, uses the Masoretic text of the Hebrew, uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures as its Old Testament document source. The Masoretic text was created around 900 AD or so. Well, the Septuagint, which is the very first Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, was created over two centuries before Christ, 
And so some Bible translations use that as its source document for the Old Testament. Of course, who's to say? Which source was more correct between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, although most of the differences are quite minor? The question for us is, which source document had the proper wording starting at verse 43? Well, fortunately, the Dead Sea Scrolls broke the tie. The Dead Sea Scrolls are almost exactly as the Septuagint. And here's what the Dead Sea Scrolls say in those last verses of the Song of Moses. And I ask you to pay, pay close attention to this. O heavens, rejoice with him. Bow to him, all sons of the divine. O nations, rejoice with his people and let all angels of the divine strengthen themselves in him. Requite those who reject him and he will cleanse his people's land. So as you can see, there's quite a bit more information in the texts written a thousand years earlier, the Dead Sea Scrolls, than what's in the Masoretic text. Why are these verses deleted in the Masoretic document? And you probably most of you won't find them appearing in your Bible. Well, we talked about this actually a couple of weeks ago. Although it's speculation, it was probably due to the very problematic Hebrew phrase that appears in the original, but the Masoretes removed it. Bow down to him all benai Elohim. Bow down to him all sons of the divine. See, now I find it so interesting that immediately following the verses in the Song of Moses where the Lord is terribly sarcastic and asking Israel what good those other gods had done them, gods that they preferred over him, that we should find this rhetoric that says that the Benai Elohim, sons of the divine, divine beings, should bow down to Yehovah. In a nutshell, many believe that the Jewish scholars who penned the Masoretic texts were but following a tradition that had been developed by removing all mention of the Benai Elohim in Holy Scripture because to consider that there were other beings that could be worshipped as gods, even though they obviously are not gods and they were under control of Yehovah, this was the basis for Israel constantly falling into idolatry. Now my opinion, and I underline opinion, is that the Benai Elohim, the divine beings that are spoken of in Genesis, divine beings that the Holy Scriptures tell us that God assigned to the various nations, every nation on earth, were and remain real quite influential over each nation. Now recall that we looked at the book of Daniel, whereby one of these Benai Elohim that was given a name, the prince of Persia, had blocked an angel of God from coming to Daniel in Babylon. And it was only the chief angelic prince, Michael, who came in and fought this spiritual prince of Persia that enabled Daniel's angels to get free from him. Another spirit being that had authority over Greece is also mentioned in those same passages. Now I think it's likely that over the centuries at least some of these spiritual princes who have authority over the Gentile nations, the Benai Elohim, allowed and enjoyed being worshipped as gods. They weren't gods. But they had such awesome power in appearance, that it's pretty easy to imagine the people of the nation over which they had charge bowing down to them, thinking of them as gods. Okay, after all, we have numerous incidents in the Bible where an angel of God makes an appearance, and the instinctive thing a witness does is to bow down before that angel and start to worship it. And the angel, of course, quickly tells that person to knock it off. 
Stop. <laughs> Therefore, here in the invocation that ends the Song of Moses in both the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scrolls about Deuteronomy, we find the instruction that the heavens and the Benai Elohim and the angels and the Gentile nations should all bow down to God Almighty. In other words, not only Israel, but everyone should submit to the Lord. To me, these final words of the Song of Moses are very likely a short summation of all the types of intelligent beings that the Lord has created. And in a sort of victory celebration, the Lord is telling all of His created beings, spirit and physical, that the proper response to what has just happened, His rescuing Israel yet again, is for these spiritual and human beings to remember their place in the celestial pecking order and therefore to bow down to their creator, Jehovah, who is above everyone and everything. Now beginning in verse 44, we have kind of a subscript to this poem. And the custom of that era dictated that when a king made a pronouncement, it was written down. And then the historical records would confirm that the recorder of the pronouncement carried through and presented the pronouncement to the people, as he'd been instructed to do. Now, since Joshua was in the process of taking over leadership of Israel, he appeared together with Moses to recite all the words, all the dabar given to him from God to the people of Israel. And Moses warns the people to take seriously all these words that he's spoken to them on Jehovah's behalf. All these words refer to the entire teaching, all of what we call today Deuteronomy. Not just the Song of Moses. Israel's survival as a nation depends on God's people accepting these instructions and commands as truth and then obeying them. Now, what a sober warning that is for we latter-day believers. A warning for those who now comprise spiritual Israel. That warning's embedded in the last couple of verses of Deuteronomy 32. Moses tells the people that what he's spoken to them is not trivial. It's not empty. These debar, these words, are synonymous with the word commands. The debar, the commands, are to be followed, not relegated to suggestions or niceties or options. And the warning is that to trust the Lord and to follow His commands is life itself. Remember that life and blessing are the positive purposes for the law, while death and curses are the negative. Church, I'm afraid we've trivialized the commandments of God for century after century, and never more so than in the last hundred years. We've come to the point that it's often taught that to be obedient to God's laws is essentially a bad thing. And we have given it the negative connotation of legalism. Imagine. We have become so enamored with our own doctrines and ideals, so in love with our individuality, so convinced of the goodness of our hearts, that to obey the Lord's written commands is considered as being in opposition to Christ. Here the Lord, through his mediator Moses, says that his laws, his Torah, is life for his people. And any other way is death for his people. Now I say to you, my brothers and sisters of Messiah, you who are also his people, 
Choose life. Choose to heed the warning. Choose to be obedient to the Lord. In fact, Moses is about to find out that even the second greatest mediator ever to exist, second only to Yeshua, he's also subject to that warning. And the proof of this is found in verse 48. When Yehovah instructs Moses to ascend Mount Nebo, and there he's going to breathe his last. And just as Aaron died six months earlier, to the day, atop Mount Hor, so Moses shall die on Mount Nebo. Now, you know, there's a lot of significance in dying upon a high place. The high places, mountain peaks and such, were thought by the ancients to be the habitation of the gods. Okay? And I've shown you that the earliest title of God that's given to us in the Bible is El Shaddai, which means God of the mountain. Even the epithet for God that we find so endearing that uh, that's in so many of our songs, the rock, Tzur in Hebrew, doesn't mean rock like a boulder. It means a rocky cliff that overlooks the valleys and the plains that spread out before it, that spread out before him. Altars to the gods were always placed on top of the highest possible geography of the area where a people lived. To die and be buried on a high place is to die and be buried near God. That was their mindset. The Lord himself called Moses to come to that high place of Mount Nebo because it was the highest peak in the area of Moab where Israel was now camping. It not only afforded Moses a panoramic view of the promised land that he'd never enter, but it was a great honor to be called up to the mountaintop by God to come and be near him. Both Aaron and Moses died before entering the promised land. A consequence of breaking faith with the Lord, according to verse 51. Jewish scholars and rabbis have debated that the exact nature of especially Moses' offense against God. They debated that for 3,000 years. Recall that it stems from the time out in the wilderness when the Israelites needed water. And the Lord told Aaron and Moses to speak to a rock, commanding it to produce water. Instead, Moses spoke to the people and struck the rock. This wrongful act failed to confirm God's sanctity. And the consequence was severe enough that even God's first mediator, Moses, and the first high priest, Aaron, would never get to enter the land of their rest, Canaan, because of it. I wonder, could it be that the point of the terrible penalty against Moses and his brother was that the only human mediator that could lead God's people into God's promised land had to be a perfect mediator? A perfect high priest. Perhaps we are meant to see that the exact nature of the infraction really is unimportant. Rather, it is that there was an infraction. That in fact, while to the average Israelite or to us today, or even to the finest theological minds, the infractions that Moses and Aaron committed might have been relatively minor. So for the Lord to ordain such a harsh punishment to such great men just doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem proportional. Doesn't seem to match the act of the consequence. See, Moses was a very special man. Even though the high priest is often referred to as a mediator... And even Joshua was seen by some as Israel's replacement mediator, replacing Moses. In fact, Moses was well above both of these. 
neither Aaron nor Joshua had a position that approached Moses' position. Neither ever received the privilege of speaking to God face to face. Joshua was never permitted into the Holy of Holies as were the high priest and Moses. And even then, the high priest could only go in one time per year on Yom Kippur. Moses went before the Ark of the Covenant with regularity. Yet God's requirement for Moses was perfection. And Moses was a son of human parents, carrying with him an evil inclination, a sinful nature, that came with the fall of Adam. So he just couldn't meet the standard. The infraction of striking the rock was sin. Even if we want to call it the tiniest sin, it's a sin. Even the tiniest sin disqualified Moses from being Israel's savior. So instead, a 1,300-year wait ensued until a man was born who didn't have a human father. A man who was divinely conceived and who could meet the standard as Jehovah's perfect mediator. That man was Yeshua. He could be Israel's savior because he did something Moses could not do. Jesus didn't commit even the tiniest infraction. Not the smallest sin. He was perfect. He followed the law perfectly in exactly the spirit it was meant to be followed. See, Moses is an example and an ideal that if any man alive today could even attain that same degree of perfection, that he'd be looked upon with awe. But even that isn't sufficient to satisfy God's justice system. That any man would think that our hearts are so pure that we can ignore the tiniest of God's laws without consequence, even though we're redeemed, or that we are so good and righteous that we don't need Jesus to atone for our imperfection or our sin, that man walks a sure path of confrontation with the Creator. I'll leave you with that. Next week, we'll start chapter 33, Moses' farewell blessing to Israel.